Father in heaven, thank you so much for granting to us clarity in the mission and the work of the church. I ask that you would help us to understand, Lord, incline our hearts to obey you. It is often easy to believe that we are doing well and to give ourselves benefit of the doubt, uh, to hear the scripture and to be hearers rather than doers. Lord, I ask that this morning you'd help us to submit to the scripture, to be warmed and encouraged by its truths, and that you would lead us to act out and to do what scripture asks us to do. Lord, we ask for your grace in doing so, that it would be effective in bearing fruit, not only in the lives of those we disciple, but in our lives as those who are trying to encourage others to follow Christ. We ask these things that you might glorify your son through the work of the church, that the gospel might advance into this community and people might be saved, and Lord, that the affection and love for people might be evident and encourage one another. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so why is discipleship important? Let's just start with Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Um, scripture says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I think we just have a really simple challenge that often we just read um, somewhat with um, future language reinvested into this kind of uh, anachronistically. So he says, go and make disciples. When you hear that command, what do you think that means? Okay, well, I agree that that's a good take. Usually, if we're just being real simple, when you think of go make disciples, you would probably read that something like, go and help people get saved. Is that fair? Like, like go and share the gospel. I do think it's a fascinating way to frame it. If I said, go make Christians, that just strikes us weird, doesn't it? I mean, we, we think of it as like, my duty is to preach, to share the gospel, to call them to faith, to invite them to Christ, but to have this like a positive fruit-bearing statement, go make them, it, it feels very bold. But since Christ himself is making it, and he, he prefaces this with all authority is given to me, therefore go, that we have some sense of hope that this is a fruitful task. Now, notice he says we're making disciples. So when we talk about what is discipleship or why is discipleship so important, let's just start with the thought that we take and we reshape this, and our ears probably hear it something like this, is go and expand the numbers of Christians. Go share the gospel. Go build um, the, the, the kingdom of Christ. Something like that is what we're hearing. But he's actually using discipleship language. Go make disciples. Okay. Go make disciples. So first thing is all disciples are required to do what? Disciple. You, you are commanded to be in the work of disciple making. Now this is not, if, if you're thinking through logic, you want me to defend this a little bit. He says to his disciples, go make disciples. At the end, he's going to tell them that the content of disciple making is, is to include what? Teach them to Observe what? All. What is the last command we just heard him say? Make disciples. So if you're making disciples and you're teaching them to obey everything he commanded, what is one of the things you're teaching them to do? Make disciples. 
Okay, so who's commanded to make disciples? Okay, if we're being like junior high here, it's like, okay, take your finger, point it at your chest. <laughs> I am commanded to make disciples. Now, the reason I, I, I suggest that this is helpful for you to do mentally, if not physically, is, is I do think we have a tendency to think it's only for the spiritual. It's only for those who are mature. Now, I'm not going to totally disagree with you, but then I think you have an obligation to get there. Right? Like, you can't sit on the sideline and be like, man, I, I wish I could disciple others, but I'm just, I'm a rockhead. I don't know anything about Jesus. Oh, well. <laughs> like, but the solution would be learn, grow, so that you can do this, that you can mature into the place where you can call others to follow Christ. Point B, I just put them in the verse, so you don't even have a hard time following where I'm gra grabbing this. All types of people should be encouraged to follow Christ. I think that's kind of obvious for most of us in this age, but, you know, perhaps one of the ways I, I think we can get this wrong in our modern culture is we tend to gravitate to people like us or who we enjoy being around. Uh, I'm, again, just going to be really frank with you this morning. That's disobedience. Right? When you see someone who you don't jive with, and so you're like, you know what, someone else can disciple them. That is that is disregarding the call of the Lord to make disciples of all types of people, all nations. You know, so whether it's a national thing, a race thing, a uh, socioeconomic thing, whether it's even an age issue. And to be honest, it is interesting that I think oftentimes older people are intimidated by younger people and a little bit fearful that they won't connect, that they'll, they'll, they'll not be able to speak the language or that they'll be They'll be looking foolish some way in which they call others to follow Christ. And oftentimes, fear will keep us from speaking to others. Well, this command starts with, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. The king of that person, the creator of that person, has called you to disciple that person. All types of people. Okay, point C. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there's more to be said than I have on point C, but at least we can say this. All disciples should be baptized as followers of the Lord in a Trinitarian church. Right? There is no exception. When I say Trinitarian, that's, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that a church that rejects the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, is not actually a church. It is therefore not an appropriate place to do this. And I think when you look at this whole command, discipleship is actually given to the body of people. Right? Discipleship is never going to be accomplished by a single person. Um, I think baptism is an ordinance given to the church even, not even to pastors. Right? It's not like we are priests that, that the sacraments have to be done by a sacred person, but by the sacred people. Um, so, a Trinitarian church is necessary, and all disciples should be baptized. So, at least I'm seeing a door cracked to all discipleship happens in the context of a local assembly, right? All discipleship happens in the context of a local assembly to whom you are accountable, right? You're baptized by that assembly, by that gathering of God's people. But again, I, I'm not saying that all in point two, but at least I think we are saying this. All disciples should be baptized. I put a little footnote in there. I thought this was interesting in some of the research I was doing. Um, it was just a side, like, tangent, but 
talking about baptizing children, how early to do it. We really have a pressure in our society to baptize early. Uh, perhaps we should be more skeptical of that than we are. But Mark Dever spends time going through historical records and lays them out. The average age of believers getting baptized, of a lot of the baptisms of age that he cites and, and brings to uh, the attention of the reader, are about 18 to 22. Is the average age of convert baptism in um, Baptist churches in the 17 and 1800s. And it's probably not to get that second great awakening, which is really a theological tragedy in terms of the type of things that was happening during that awakening, where you start to see the age decline into this modern era where now we're baptizing eight-year-olds. That was really interesting. It just, it's helpful to know sometimes history in that sense where you feel like, I mean, I've had it. <laughs> this is probably about a year ago I had this sweet little girl call me. I think she was 10. Say, Pastor Mark, can I get baptized? That's a super hard thing for a pastor to be like, ah, uh, no. Like if you're, you're holding back their Christian faith, so it's really helpful when you have a framework for how discipleship has happened throughout the generations of God's people to know that this is baptizing young children who have very little evidence of their own followership of Christ. That that's something the church has generally not been excited about doing. Um, so it might be helpful for you, those of you who are trying to think through that. Point D, all disciples should observe all of Jesus' commands as embodied in the New Testament documents. Okay, so I, I, I think this is helpful. So when I think through discipleship, discipleship is helping someone else to know and obey Christ's commands. So there, there's, I think, two elements of that. Part of the reason people don't obey is ignorance. So whose responsibility is it to make sure this new disciple is baptized? Right, you are called to make disciples and to baptize them. Now, he's speaking to the 12 apostles, so I think he's speaking to the church, and they as the representatives of the church. He's not speaking as an individual, although it applies to all of us as individuals in the church, if that makes sense. Okay, so you guys tracking so far? So if my job is to teach you to observe all things, I think that's a task that's beyond any single person. That this is a task of all of us corporately to do to all of us. That, that at times... Every one of us is needing correction, instruction, or observation that calls us to pay attention to what's in front of us in terms of discipleship, or maybe where we're falling short. Discipleship is helping people not only know what God says, but to do it, right? To be motivated, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, maybe even to know how to get it done. You know, there's a lot of things you know what to do, but not necessarily how to accomplish it. So the goal of discipleship is to come alongside of someone and help them do this. Okay, so as we define disciple, because I think that's what's next, right? If I'm called to make disciples, God gives us, I think, some pretty clear explanations in Scripture. What does this actually look like? How, how is a disciple defined? Maybe I could say it this way. What, what is the formative DNA? Like, what is the DNA of a godly disciple? So, I think Luke 6 actually helps us in thinking through what the discipleship looks like. Uh, Luke 6, verse 40. Scripture says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his, his teacher. So if you're going to disciple others, what is the assumption in, in this statement? Okay, I heard a lot of mumbling. 
I need someone to stay, speak clearly or raise their hand. What, what is, Colleen? Okay, in order to be an effective discipler, we need to know God's word. Okay, we need to be, we need to be someone that can be followed. So it's really hard to lead someone by saying, hey, keep on going ahead of me. Right? <laughs> like you don't disciple from behind. So, so there's an obligation that if all of us are to be discipling, that we all need to be aggressively pursuing Christ in all areas of life so that we can call people to come with us. As the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He doesn't say, hey, keep on going, boys. He says, hey, look, come with me. Follow me as I follow Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus um, Peter says, he gave us this example that we might follow in his steps. And Jesus did not ask us to do more than he did. Jesus asks us to follow after him, to be like him, to follow his steps. Okay, so when we think through discipleship then, it does expect a lot of the discipler. Okay, who of us is to be discipling? All of us, right? Like we took that finger and all of us. So that means you all, maybe I can say it more clearly, we all need to be growing daily so that others can walk with us and follow with us as we follow after Christ. Um, now I'm going to take you to some, some different texts, but I think as we look through this, well, let me just take you to Matthew 19. So I think there's a commitment that I just generally want to challenge all of us to recognize that we probably need to remind ourselves on a regular basis. Matthew 19. How much does God expect of you in order to follow Christ? Yeah, this is right after the story of the rich young man, the ruler who came to Jesus and wants to be saved, and he goes away sad because he's wealthy and doesn't want to give up his wealth. In verse 27, Peter, always good for saying what we all think but are too smart to say it out loud. Peter just says it out loud, right? But Peter said in reply, behold, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Again, he's saying what we're all thinking. Like, we left everything to follow you, Jesus. Let me just stop there and remind you that that statement is, is following after, you know, going back to Matthew chapter 3 and 4, or if you're to go to Mark chapter 1, I think it's Luke chapter 4. What does Jesus do when he sees these fishermen? Okay, look back at Matthew chapter 4. Because I, I think we do a disservice to the significance of the authority of Christ. Okay, going back to verse 18, you see the context here. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, sees the two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus, that's the he there, said to them, follow me. That's an imperative. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed. What does Peter say that cost them? 
chapter 19. Everything. Right? So how much commitment does Christ ask of us to follow after him in salvation? How much? Everything. It says, we left everything and followed you. I think the imperative is actually really helpful in preaching the gospel. There is a command force to the gospel. Right? Like, we, we can say it's just news. Like, hey, here's the truth. You should believe it. But when Christ speaks to others, he doesn't say, hey, Peter, you should consider following me. What does he say? He commands, follow me. Peter does what? Follows. Matthew 28, all authority is given to me, therefore, make disciples. Make them. We don't suggest to them discipleship. I mean, with the authority of Christ, I can tell you, if you are not following after him, you are sinning. I don't think that is merely for believers I can say that. Now, the command to follow Christ is creation-wide. He is king. You must submit to him. You must obey him. You must follow him. So when we're working with fellow believers who are negligent in their obedience, not that we shouldn't be gracious, but we should be very careful that in that graciousness, we're not suggesting that they can take path A or path B, but wise people take path A, as though it's merely a matter of prudence. To not follow Christ is to disobey him. It's sin. This is why it's so essential as a church that we understand when we interact with one another, I'd say there's a flip side to this, that, that we're doing so as instruments of Christ to challenge them to follow after Christ. That we dare not do two things. We dare not merely make suggestions that are our opinions as though they're Christ's. Like, as disciplers, I mean, it's one thing if you're like, hey, you're talking about buying a car. I really like blue cars. Make sure that's in the context of your opinion. That they're not hearing like, oh, Jesus wants me to have a blue car. Right? Like, you're discipling. Make sure you're communicating very clearly what God says versus what you say. But on the flip side... When you see someone acting contrary to Christ, you need to be able to perceive it and call them to follow Christ, and I would suggest to you, on the authority of Scripture. That, that you use the Bible as the foundation from which you speak, but you don't act like disobedience or obedience is optional. Okay, so as we, as we work with discipleship, I think we have a divine obligation to call people to obey Christ by following after Christ and we do that in the context of relationships. Okay, so he commands that they immediately follow. There's a deep level of commitment. I'm going to frame out a couple ways in which I think you see that commitment. Um, let me read these passages for you as we define discipleship's commitment. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. For where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's John 12, 26. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Whoever loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Consider that statement. Whoever loves his mom or dad more than me is not worthy of me. Luke would add wife into this, con into this same text. So, I mean, he's saying if you love any human, son or daughter is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So he's suggesting a massive, weight of obligation 
in how we view our commitment to follow Christ. I think this is why you see an exception added to the divorce clauses of Scripture in 1 Corinthians. Because now we have articulated the importance of following Christ. And if your spouse is, is not a believer and is pulling you away from Christ, you have a divine obligation to Christ that you cannot break for the sake of your spouse. And so you choose to follow Christ. Now, again, that's the context that person is actually not a, a believer in Christ. I think you want to be careful that you don't just uh, choose to divorce and then say, because they're not obedient, therefore they must not be a believer, and now I can divorce. You know, that we don't like backdoor in a broadening of divorce clauses. You know, I did not look that up. I just know from the parallel passages, Luke adds wife, and the other Gospels don't. But if you have a cross-reference Bible, my guess is you'll see it in there. Uh, Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, what I would like you to see is it's not merely just deep commitment. It's a deep, deep commitment to whom? Jesus Christ. Now, it's not only a deep commitment to Christ, it's a deep, deep commitment to Christ that changes the way we live. So, so again, like I'm just pastorally evaluating culture, not necessarily crossing all the time. But as I do, I see a lot of people that distinguish between Christ and obedience. I mean, something like this, like I love Jesus, but don't love his church. You know, like statements like that, that when you look at the whole New Testament are just confounding. I mean, they're just honestly nonsense. But if you say you love Christ, what are you going to do? You're going you're to obey his commands. That's a pretty clear New Testament principle. And I think, again, as disciples, we have a challenge before us of unpacking the culture enough to help people see where they've bought into cultural lies and calling them to follow after Christ, not culture. And I think Christian culture is just as challenging sometimes when our culture has moderated the aggressive calls of Christ to follow him to kind of lukewarm, easy to absorb in the context of a moralistic American dream pursuit. Right, like that, that has become a very normal thing. Like we're good people, we're wholesome people. We go to church on Sunday mornings and Jesus is happy with us. And that is now how we define a disciple. And when we read verses like, I mean, we're putting it together, Matthew 4 and Matthew 19, follow me, we've left everything to follow you. That person is a strange person in the context of American Christianity. But that's, that's actually the norm of the New Testament disciple. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines a disciple this way. The existence, it's the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the one described as a math, mathetes. That's disciple in Greek. And which it's particularly, in which it particularly leaves no doubt as to who is deploying the formative power. I thought that was interesting because it means Christ is shaping the disciple, of changing that disciple. And even more significant is the fact that the disciple unconditionally accepts the teacher's authority, not just inwardly by believing in him, but also outwardly by obeying him. But I, I think that's helpful at the end where it says, more significant is the fact that the disciple unconditionally accepted Christ's authority, not just inwardly by believing in him, but also outwardly by obeying him. All right. It's a daily commitment. Luke 9.23. 
to deny self in order to please Christ. So Luke says that actually daily. Uh, Christ said, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Yeah, and Luke says, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? And whoever is ashamed of me or my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. When you look at that text, he calls us to take up a cross, which is an object of death, on a regular basis, to deny ourselves, to follow after him daily. That's a hard call, isn't it? I mean, Sundays is not the only day of the week that we deny ourselves and follow after Christ. Although I do appreciate you all being here Sunday morning, bright and early, denying your normal impulses to sleep in when there's not a job on the line. Okay, so as we, as we move forward then, the essence of life of the disciple is that he's marked out by an unreserved commitment to Christ that's defined by faith and love. The devotion is not a mechanical grudging but a heartfelt commitment that is deep. It is not cold, it is not contractual, but a faith-filled, trusting commitment. Self-denial is what everyone does who has set their minds to follow after the Lord. Like, Like a Navy SEAL or some type of special forces type of commitment where it is going to be hard, your life is going to be changed and shaped by that commitment. Anything less than that is, is to not be understanding the call of what it is to be a disciple. John 15, 20. Christ says, Remember the words that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Christ suffered persecution. So when he calls us to take up our cross and follow him, it's not just self-sacrifice. It's also what? A willingness to put ourselves in a place of personal affliction. Whether that's socially, familially, whether it's, it's governmentally, there are people who will hurt you or cause injury, whether it's to your feelings or body or finances, because of Christ. Okay, so the commitment is also to increasing in knowledge, in love and obedience, and to God's truth. Uh, come with me to Ephesians 4.20. I think this is helpful as we're thinking through discipleship. So we're mostly defining terms and defining maybe objectives this morning. Next week we'll be looking a little bit more at some of the practical outcomes of this or how to do it in the context of a meeting over coffee. Ephesians 4. Now he is challenging them to a, a, a holiness in their character. And so when you come to verse 20, he says, This is not the way you learned Christ. That is, there's a worldliness that presses into your lives, but it's not consistent with the way you learned Christ. I think that's actually not unimportant. Again, discipleship is calling people to follow whom? Christ. And so he sees the Ephesian church, at least some of them, beginning to like detour. 
It's like they've hit an exit, and now they're going sideways the way they need to go. He goes, that's not the way you learned Christ. This is the way you learned Christ. He continues on. Assuming that you have heard about him and, and, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now, he's assuming something about the church. What does the church do? What do the people of the church do? They teach people about Jesus. Right? This is discipleship. Discipleship is saying, there's Jesus. Let's go after him. Well, what does that look like? Well, let me teach you. It's not merely like Jesus died on the cross, therefore believe in him. There's a whole context of truth and rightness and society and marriage that, that, that Jesus captures for us and who he is. I mean, he's going to do it in a chapter. He's going to talk about marriage. And who does he frame out marriage to be about? Christ, right? Here's Christ's love to his people. Therefore, this is what should be happening in the home with husbands and wives. So when he's calling people to get their act together, he's doing it in the framework of discipleship. In fact, he continues on. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, disciple. Right? That's what a disciple does. He commits to following Christ on his own way. He denies himself. He follows after Christ. It's corrupt through deceitful desires, and it needs to be renewed in the spirit of our minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of of God. And again, we see God in the face of Christ. Right? Like when he says, if you, you haven't seen the Father, but he who has seen me has seen the Father. So when we recognize that the Apostle Paul is actually challenging the church and holding them accountable to discipling one another after the pattern of Christ, it's not merely the Gospels that talk about discipleship, that the New Testament, although it uses that word disciple significantly less after the uh, beginning of Acts, that the, the pattern and the application is still the same. We follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So it's still like that initial gospel of here's Jesus Christ, here's who he is, follow after him is something, he says, is still saving us. Right? The gospel is not to be something we believe and move on from. Right? We don't graduate away from the gospel. So good math curriculums, it's not like they teach addition in first and second grade, and then you don't add anymore. You go to your advanced calculus, and there's still a little plus button on those calculators. Right? Like, you never get away from it. And when you break down those massively complex equations, do you know it's almost always part of them? Addition. But yet in the Christian church, is, it, there, there seems to be this idea that somehow the gospel itself is something that we move away from. So when we meet someone who is not following after Christ, we should go back and say, have you denied the basics? Do you believe them? Do you believe in Christ? Yes. Well, I just want to challenge you on your claim. You say you do, but you're not walking in belief. Right? So the call of a, a discipler is to make sure that the initial claim, the initial confidence, the initial faith and love that ex are expressed towards Christ are growing and maturing 
And if you find someone who's parked on the discipleship side of the road going nowhere, assessing what's wrong gently and graciously is necessary for the discipler to do. I don't know if you've ever been broken down on the side of the road. It's not a fun moment. It's really a blessing when a helpful person stops by and offers you aid. Some of you don't understand how significant that is because you don't live, you have never lived in the area, uh, the era pre-cell phone. <laughs> right? But some of you remember what it was like to break down and have no phone in the middle of nowhere where there's miles of walking or help or, or holding out a thumb or waving someone down and hoping you can get aid. I can remember as a young child, we lived on a um, kind of a, a little bit of a rural uh, uh, section of Wisconsin roads. I can remember probably twice people coming and knocking on our door and kind of embarrassed asking, can I use your phone? <laughs> sure. Uh, who are you? Like, oh, our roads, a car broke down on the side of the road a little ways down, but we need help. That's a disciple's job. If someone's car, if they're Theological life, their commitment to Christ is unmoving if it's static, if it's, if it's in decline, if it's in rebellion. Again, I'm big picture, Christian culture never challenges their salvation. Why? And our job is, it's like the AAA guy. You pull up next to them and say, hey, what's going on? Where are you at? This, this is, I, I'm going to, in an honest perspective, this is why church discipline is so necessary. Because we're, we're challenging the person who's failing to pursue Christ with the fact that that discipleship failure long-term indicates they don't actually have a Christward commitment at all. Or at least we're challenging them so much so that we're saying, hey, um, your, your spiritual life is in danger, repent, or that danger will be confirmed by lack of repentance. But on a personal level, that should not be happening publicly in front of the whole church without disciples coming along and saying, hey, you're not following Christ well. You're not following after him. This is the gospel by which we are being saved. We are believers. It means we, we, we still believe it. And we, we didn't believe it back then and got saved, and now we've got the stamp on our license and we're good. I hope we're, we're getting that as disciples, that one of the initial ways in which God puts our, like, on our path of life, our proverbial rumble strip. You know rumble strips are on the roads? You know, like when you kind of veer off the main lines and all of a sudden your car is going, and vibrating, and, you know, the passenger next to you wakes up and, and looks over at you with anger because they're afraid you're going to crash them. That's, a rumble strip is that, that the ribs on the side of the, they're, they're put in the asphalt that, that, help you know you're out of line. That's what a discipler does. They're God's gracious rumble strips, saying, hey, back in the lane. Keep doing what you should do. Keep going where you need to go. Okay. So gospel application is the essence of Christian living. You see that in these two texts, that we're called to say, this is the gospel. This is what it means to follow Christ. Do it. Um, gospel obedience is lifelong. I kind of already said some of this, but let me just read these texts for you so you can add these to your notes. Uh, John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice the if then. If you abide, then you are truly disciples. What's the presumption? If you don't abide, 
It's in doubt. Um, 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That's 2 John 9. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I think one of the dangerous things we've seen in, in just general church culture is this idea that obedience is somehow unloving. Like it's, it's legalistic to obey. Is it legalistic to obey? What, so what is legalism then? If it's not just like a very, I mean like, if you say, hey, you have to obey everything Jesus said. Can you imagine someone saying, man, that sounds legalistic. Okay, so, so what is legalism then if it's not like this rigid obedience? I'm sorry? Okay, additional man-made rules, right? Or what? Okay, or making it a, a means by which we earn saving merit. Okay? Is, is obedience to all of Christ's... <laughs> is obedience to all of Christ's commands. Pharisaical, legalistic. Is expecting other Christians to be sharing that same heart of commitment, legalistic, or demanding? Maybe demanding, but not legalistic, right? So I, I think we need, to be, we need to be pressing first our own conscience that we're not, we're not allowing the little dark corners of our life to be places where insurrection against the king is allowed to foment and grow. And, and that's what a discipler does in their hope of being a discipler. Right, like, I'm working on cleaning out the, the, the closet that we never use that has just become this place of junk and spiritual debris. And I'm coming to your house. Works a lot better than, hey, don't look at my closet, but your closet, let's deal with yours first. Right, Matthew? We deal with the, the beam in our eye before the splinter in our neighbor's. A discipler is diligent to make sure that all of Christ's commands are being obeyed that they're not negligent either in the knowing or the doing of those commands. But we're not just, there are, are there any commands that are unimportant? I, I would assume the, the large majority of the Christian world may agree with us and disagree in the quietness of their own life or in the practice of their own life. Finally, uh, this morning at least finally, Commitment to loving other disciples. Uh, this is so clearly the New Testament uh, pattern for other Christians. Again, I, I think the lie that I see common is that somehow gathering and spending time with God's people is optional. Or that the measure of my commitment to church is inversely connected to the joy I get from the preaching or the music. Longborn preacher, not going. Lame music, not going. Hard work week, not going. Now, I've used the word commitment all through this because when I hear that, I'm like, not committed, not committed, not committed. And we should all look in the mirror on that one because sometimes we're just honestly just not deeply committed to something that doesn't give us lots of happiness and joy, which is 
really not a commitment to the thing, but a commitment to ourselves. Okay, so, love one another, John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Okay, what's this standard for loving one another? Have you seen the people you work with? Like, like I, I already made fun of Peter, but let's just be honest, he had Judas. It's amazing how often we, we do not call people to suck it up as disciples and deal with hard people within the church. There's always going to be hard people in the church because you're always going to have challenging people who are sweet believers but just rub you the wrong way. Or maybe their weakness is your personal pet peeve. And it's like just lemon juice in the eye every time you talk to them. It's just hard to deal with them. They're not Judas. This guy's plotting to betray you, criticizes you in front of others for accepting the sweet worship of a sweet lady who's broken in life and gives them spiritual cover job that makes you look stingy. Right? This could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus, what is wrong with you for accepting this? Can, how angry would you be knowing he wanted to embezzle the money? That's why he's mad. And he's going to kill you. And he makes you look bad in front of everyone else. You tell me you're going to respond graciously. Can you imagine what it was like to disciple Judas, knowing he was just a hypocrite, and to love him, and to pursue him, and to pray for him? Love one another as I have loved you. I would also add, Jesus loves the corporate body, not just individuals. The distinction between those two is nonsense in the New Testament, but is a common discussion I hear. Jesus loved the church. The church is his bride. You should view the church and love the church like Christ did. How committed was he to her? He died for her. How pretty was she? How attractive and helpful was he? Was she to him? Wrinkly? And spotted, right? He dies for her that he might purify her and cleanse her. She's dirty. To remove the spots and wrinkles. Apparently, she's not super attractive. And he loves her. And then he says, come and be like me. Love her like I love her. The her is us. It's the us. Okay, as we disciple people, this is then the part of the DNA we're trying to pursue for them or with them. Love one another. Be united with one another. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us. That's the church. They left the church, but they were not of the church. For if they had been of the church, they would have continued with the church. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of the church. That's a compelling passage. And I put the church in there because he's using the pronoun us. When you read it correctly, because the us is not just like he left John. John's point is they left the church. You read it like that again, it's a pretty compelling argument. The disciple is deeply committed to gathering with God's people. Carol, that is 1 John 2, 19. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, Okay, first one, doctrine. Second one is what? Fellowship. 
that togetherness that calls one another to pursue Christ together, they're committed, right? They devoted themselves to this, to the breaking of bread and prayers. I know Sunday night, sometimes uh, praying publicly is one of those things that's it's cringy for a culture that takes spiritual stuff and makes it uber-private. But this church is devoted to praying together, fellowshipping together, learning doctrine together. This is not the private pursuit of any person. This is what they did together. Okay, finally. I think it's finally. I might have a fourth. Nope, this is finally. So, serving one another. Um, Let me just use this one text to to make the point plain. Uh, Jesus, this is after he had died, he goes to Peter. He has breakfast with the apostles, and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's some debate about whether it's love more than the other disciples or love me more than the fish, the career that you've gone back to. I I take it as the second. It it seems very strange for Jesus to say, do you love me more than these other apostles? But there's argument to be made for that, so perhaps I'm I'm incorrect. But I take it as, do, do you love me more than your career, the thing that's comfortable, the thing that makes you feel safe, the thing that didn't terrify you when your Savior got crucified? Um, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says to him, can you guys finish it? Yeah, the ESV translates it lambs, but you're right. Feed my lambs. I would just like to suggest to you all that the reason to be disciples is because we love Jesus. Right? Like, just hear the echo. Do you love Jesus? Your heart's response is, yes, I love Jesus. Jesus echoing words back to you, feed my lambs. Feed them. So maybe I should ask in this, like, discipleship 101, why aren't you? Right? Like, do you love Jesus? He does this three times to Peter. Yes. Feed my lambs. You cannot, with integrity, say, I love Jesus and not want to see his lambs knowing the word of life and walking in the path of life. You cannot, with biblical integrity, say both. Or uh, say one and deny the other, I should say. Right? Like, you can't, you can't love Jesus and deny the, the need for the sheep to be fed and be part of that. So, Let me encourage you, if you are not yet in relationships in which you are strengthening one another, it doesn't always have to be formal. We'll talk about this next week. Sometimes it's like, well, I disciple John. I meet with him every Tuesday, and we sit in a coffee shop for one hour and 20 minutes. Good, that that can be discipleship. It can also happen when you go outside in a minute and grab a donut. And you just ask someone how they're doing. And then you let them know you're praying for them. And they kind of leak a little bit of, ugh. And you're like, hey, you know what? You don't like to get together sometime. We could do that. But I would just encourage you that little, ugh. Man, that, there's something going on there. You need, to, you need to work on that. You need to pay attention. That, that's discipleship. It doesn't always have to be in this formal framework. You know, sometimes it's, it's merely having someone join you in an activity so that you can spend time with them showing them how to pursue the Lord with others. It doesn't always have to happen in like a rooted relationship. Um, that'd be our discipleship curriculum. But um, we'll talk about that next week and the week following. So we have two more weeks of this. 
And hopefully this was at least like building a foundation both for your commitment and kind of what it looks like. Like, what am I trying to get this person to look like? Deeply committed to gathering, deeply committed to loving one another, committed to following Christ daily, willing to sacrifice their own desires. And this is part of the DNA of what it means to be a disciple, following after Christ by faith and love. All right, let me pray and be done. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ. He did for us what he is now asking us to do. He obeyed everything you gave him. He glorified your name having done all the work that you had given him to do. Father, whether it is our employment or relating to our family righteously, whether it's listening with joy as we hear the word of God, uh, we ask that you would help us to look like your son, that we would be people who embody his grace to one another, who speak the truth in love, who encourage one another, and that we follow after Christ as he did those things to the people around him. Lord, help us to be faithful to follow after Christ, to deny ourselves and to love him more than life itself. We ask that you'd help our church to be filled with people who are making and calling others to that same path of following after Christ. We ask these things that Jesus might be glorified and we come to you on the basis of his work that has made us presentable in your presence through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.